Welcome to a new season of Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Tordot. Alaska has thousands of world-class outdoor men and women. One such person is John Bauman. John's climbs, primarily in the winter, include Mount St. Elias, Mount Logan, and Mount Russell. The kayak around Kodiak, the Aleutians, Iceland, the Falkland Islands, and the length of the Alaska Peninsula. John talks about some of these trips and what it took to live to become, as they say, an old mountaineer. This interview was done outside on a sunny summer day during the pandemic, so you might hear some other Alaskans flying to and from their adventures. Stay tuned for Outdoor Explorer. All right, John, so let's uh, talk about the uh, uh, Mount Logan, is that right? Um, first winter attempt. Yeah, this was the first winter attempt, and uh, the, initially it was four of us. It was uh, Todd Frankowitz and Steve Koslow and Vern Teos and myself. And so actually uh, Steve and Vern and I took a trip and flew into the Mount Sovereign area in the Talkeetnas and perfected what we called our kind of quasi-ranger trench, the military taught their soldiers how to dig in a trench and then put a tarp over it, you know, supported by skis, poles, that sort of thing, uh, as a quick survival, survival mechanism. Tent, yeah. And we kind of uh, went a step further and we figured out how you could cut blocks, line a, a whole trench with blocks that were peaked then, and then yeah. dump a pile of snow over it, would harden up. And that system I used in all my winter ascents and that's the reason I think that I had a lot of successful So is that one sense. person tent or that have No, you one? can make it you can make that trench as big as you want. And how look how deep was it? You dig down about 3 feet and then what we did especially when you had a larger number of people we actually would dig out a scallop an area for like your thighs down perpendicular and then the next one down the trench would be on the other side. So you would stagger them, so you wouldn't uh -huh. have one big, you know, trench Everybody had their own little slot. Spot. So yeah, two yeah. people had their own little oh, foot uh, uh. thigh area, and that way you didn't have the snow sink down and collapse yeah. as much. And the thing is that, you know, if you were going to return the same route, which we were obviously on this one, we had a ready place to stay. Yeah. And you don't have to start digging a hole in the side of a snow bank crawling in it with your rain gear on and shoveling snow out past you and come out, you know, totally wet. You know, you're doing it all above ground. You're digging down above ground and throwing the snow out down to the three foot level. You're cutting block at a little quarry you set off to the side and you're stacking that and then you're piling the snow on top of it. So, you know, I really think that that is one of the reasons why I I was able and you know my partners were able to do a lot of these winter ascents. It's quiet down there. It can be 20 below outside. It's going to be probably 20 above inside. You can light a candle. It illuminates the entire cave. You can't hear anything even if there's a blizzard outside. And yeah, we had a plastic bucket in there to poop in at the base camp one anyway, you know. So you basically didn't even have to hardly go outside if you didn't want to if a blizzard came through. Yeah. Which did. I mean, basically when we flew in there, we encountered a blizzard the next day. So now we're talking about Sovereign or Logan? I'm talking Logan. about Logan, Logan. Now, okay. so okay. I'm sorry. And right. yeah. and what happened was, uh, Vern Teos said, hey, you know, um, these other guys, George Rooney and um, they, Willie Hurstman. Oh, Willie, uh, yeah, yeah. So those two were planning on doing a winter ascent, and Vern says, well, let's just do it together and not compete right right on, on logan yeah on logan yeah so we brought those two in so it turned out to be a team of six okay yeah. um 
So when we finally went into uh, Haynes Junction, where we were going to, you know, uh, fly into it, we uh, contracted with a pilot out of Whitehorse, yeah. Andy Williams, not related to the singer that I'm aware of. <laughs> and the winter games were happening in Whitehorse that year, and his daughter was involved in it. He was supposed to be monitoring the radio. We brought along a huge single sideband radio with like 26 D cells. Yeah, I love, that. I love, I love those things. We're so used to sat phones now, but they weighed like 20 pounds. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I mean, it was for base camp. wire that was like yep. 30 feet long. You yep. had to set up. and Yeah, uh, had to be the certain never length well. yep. So anyway, we were supposed to be in contact, contact with him every evening at 7 o'clock, and we never got in contact with him. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we didn't know what was going up, uh, going on. That's once we were in there. But pre that, well, we were cooped up in a motel room. So what what month was this and what year? This, well, to be a winter scent, we had to finish by January or March 21st. So we were there at the end of February. Yeah. So we had a timeline in there if we really wanted to make an official winter scent. Right, yeah. And, you know, we wake up in the morning, beautiful, clear skies. We get a hold of Andy Williams. Ah, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's too cold to fly. He had a courier. You know, okay, you know, next oh, you're day. in Junction at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah in a, mot in a cheesy that. motel, yeah, yeah. The six of us. <laughs> and this happened day after day after day. And, you know, at one point he said, well, what's, where's the fire? And I realized my conversations with him, I shouldn't be so agitated. I should <laughs> calm it down. Yeah, yeah. And finally, we just realized that there was no way we were going to be able to do this unless we flew in with a helicopter. You know, we were, uh -huh. we were poor climbers, but, you know, yeah. that was it. We had the team ready, we were ready to go, everything was there, so we got a hold of the pilot that flies them, I think his name was McCann, um, that flies in park service and all the time, and he says, well, you know, I, I got to fly park service tomorrow morning, but, you know, in the afternoon, if you meet, meet me down at Burwash Landing, which is where there's a landing strip, you know, I'll try and get all of you in there. So, you know, that's what we did. We met him in the, at noon because he was flying in the morning, and when he said he was going to be there, he was there, and two people got in and flew out. Flew out. I think it was myself and Todd. And then he flew back, and two more went in. And Steve and George, I think, were the ones that were left over in the motel room. And by then it was getting. I mean, this is you know February. It's dark early. Yeah. Yeah. And so he couldn't get the other two in there, which was a real situation because we'd be acclimatized, they wouldn't be. So uh -huh. that would enter into the big picture. And apparently there was this big storm moving through, and Steve was really surprised that the following morning, early in the morning, daybreak, this pilot called up and said, come on down, let's get you in there. And uh -huh. so the pilot flew him in the next day. Yeah. He flew out and we got stuck for three days in a blizzard, and all of those snow structures that I've ever built have never blown away. That one started blowing away. We had our sleds in there. We had our skis in there. We, Anything that we could think of to back up what we had piled the snow on top of, we were putting out there because, you know, I, we felt that it was possible that that whole thing would blow away, and then we were really going to be up. That's crazy. Creek. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, after that, you know, everything went according to plan, and we would, you know, hike a bunch of food up build our snow shelter, hike back down so, you know, we would be at the lower elevation, hike up the next day and, you know, something to move through, bad weather. And so we'd stay there, acclimatize, and that just happened like clockwork all the way huh. up, and we were able to do the first winter ascent of Mount Logan. So we got back and to base camp, and because 
we flew in by a helicopter. We were able to land at a higher elevation, I think 9,600 feet instead of 8,000. So, I mean, that helped us out. But Andy Williams was supposedly going to fly in and fly Todd and George and um, Willie out. And then Steve and Vern and I were going to ski out, you know, back oh, to Kalani Lake. Oh, wow. So oh, we wow. had another eight days of skiing to do. Yeah. Um, so anyway, those guys had to get to a lower elevation in order for him to pick them up in an airplane instead of a helicopter. And then the three of us took off and started skiing out. Uh-huh. So when we got back, we found out, actually when we went across the border, apparently it was already in the newspaper. So Andy Williams had put the story in about us doing the first winter ascent of Mount Logan and that he was the pilot. Oh. <laughs> which kind of pissed me off because I could tell that there was that, in my mind, that U.S. versus Canada. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. you know, he would have not... He would have liked to have had a Canadian team, as a lot of people in Canada would have liked right, yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to do the to first, first but we Americans... Matt Logan's in Canada. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. we poached it on him, basically, <laughs> is what I, the feeling I was getting. Yeah. Um, and th- so you guys skied out? Yeah, we yeah. skied out, and it was a beautiful ski out. Um, you know, we were in awesome shape, so that was not an issue, and there were no problems skiing out. And, you know, we were able to complete pretty much what we had planned on doing. Yeah, but that's a great story. Um, uh, this is Paul Tordak. Uh, well, this is uh, Alaska Public Media's Outdoor Explorer. I'm with John Bauman talking about his many uh, exploits and um, decades and decades of climbing and paddling in Alaska. We, we just uh, we talked about um, Logan. Well, let's talk about another winter ascent um, or attempt of winter ascent, in this case, uh, of um, Mount St. Elias. Um, so let's, uh, that's a, a fairly interesting story, I think. And this is a winter ascent that um, maybe didn't go quite as planned. No, so, no, uh, didn't go as planned, but it was an interesting uh, attempt. And um, I don't know if a winter ascent of St. Elias had been done before. I'd have to dig in. For some reason, I'm thinking that we were trying to do the first one, but I could be wrong on that. Anyway, so it was... Dave McGivern, Leo Americus, and I, and we had been, the three of us had been doing a lot of climbing together over many, many years. And so, you know, we knew each other very well, and I can't emphasize how important it is to have partners like that. And that is a large reason for succeeding in a lot of the stuff that we did. And what made them good partners? Um, Competency. Mm -hmm. um, Democracy being able to talk it over between the three of us. It's mm-hmm. not like we had a leader. Um, you know, the endurance, you know, I, we all knew each other's abilities in terms of physically, in terms of mentally, being stuck in a snow cave for three or four days at a time, you know, and the psychological aspects of that. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the crux of it in that regard. And you all got along. Yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I can't recall any time that we ever came to fisticuffs or screaming or yelling. Right. So, so St. Elias, it's a big deal. It's a big mountain. It's on the coast, so it gets all the coastal weather. It gets so. more weather than Logan, which even though Logan's 19,000, whatever, St. Elias is 18, but I mean, the brunt of the weather goes into St. Elias. Yeah. And so Logan being, you know, I don't know how far, much further in 100 miles, whatever, is somewhat, you know, um, a calmer place to be. Yeah. So definitely the weather on St. Elias has prevented a greater number of people from 
turning around and going down. Uh, so anyway, we had actually some sponsorship um, from a telecommunications out of Gustavus, Gustavus. And so when we flew out, um, there was a 185 involved and there was a uh, Super Cub on wheel skis, not just skis. So wheel skis with combination wheel are pretty heavy, especially for a small plane like that. So, you know, um, we flew out of Yakutat, flew into this nice smooth glacier and landed and we immediately dug our snow cave and um, we flew in early in the morning so we had a fair bit of the day to do that and these other people didn't have to fly out right away and you know even though it was winter it was the end of February again with the sun on the glacier you know it started yeah. heating up the glacier yeah. so um, the pilot took off in the 185 and he yeah, the pilot took off in the 185, he flew back. Um, we ended up not being able to get the Super Cub off the runway. Oh, no. Because the pressure of the plane was creating that water layer, mm -hmm. and it just suctioned and you know the cohesive aspect of it, those skis. Oh, no, yeah. And so basically we tried to get that Super Cub off, and we couldn't get the Super Cub off. Oh, no. And so uh, we basically, you know, had to turn it around at the bottom, push the plane virtually back up to the top, and try again and again. And of course, you know, the, you know, gives it full throttle, and we can't see a thing because of all the snow around there. And we're listening to it, and there's just a cloud of snow. And all of a sudden, we hear the throttle go down again. Well, they ended, he ended up ended up having to spend the night with us, oh. the two of them. Oh yeah. And so the guy that was in the Super Cub was in blue jeans. So he was not prepared for that sort of thing. Yeah. The guy from Gustavus, who was a telecommunications guy, he had, you know, a 30 below sleeping bag and that sort of thing. Huh. So anyway, we basically, I mean, they felt like they told us, like, we saved their lives. Well, the guy in Gustavus was claustrophobic, so he slept outside with Leo in the tent, and then the pilot slept with us and oh, oh, yeah. the other pilot was going to come in the next day you know and take care of that was, but this was a kind of an ominous beginning of the trip <laughs> yeah, yes. and we actually had there's a, there's a lesson there yeah it, always, we, always be prepared wherever you yeah. go even if you're not planning to spend the night be prepared to spend the night yeah and we actually had a um a communications with uh Yakutat because they had set up a repeater somewhere down the glacier and so we had a, a very large radio, high amperage radio right there at base camp that the pilot had given us to use. Mm -hmm. And then we had the telecommunications guy that gave us little handhelds. Uh -huh. So once we were climbing, we could still do some communication in theory. Um, so anyway, uh, Mike Ivers, that was the pilot, he flew in the next day and he brought in just straight fiberglass skis. So there we are in the middle of nowhere on the glacier, swapping out wheel skis <laughs> and putting on fiberglass skis, and that was the only way that they could get that airplane out of there. Ah, uh -huh. So we took off. Um, we left a lot of the bulky gear. I left a ammunition box, army ammunition box, with all my expensive Nikon lenses and yeah. camera back there, you know. Uh, and we took off. We had set up a 10-foot pole and guided off, so in case, you know, we had a lot of snow, we could still see it. 
Um, unfortunately, you know, we didn't have a GPS at that point in time. That was quite a few years ago. And what, so, what year was this? I don't know. I'd have to actually look that up. It had to been. It had to been GPS mid '90s, I think, because early, early to mid '90s. Yeah. GPSs were just starting to come out, but we didn't yeah. own one. Yeah, we'll finish the story, but I was involved in this a little bit, so I d it had to be. I knew you, so it was at okay. least at least early to mid '90s, somewhere in there. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, you know, and and Logan, every time we came back down when we started reversing our climb on Logan, I mean, there was you know our snow shelter. Right. Yeah. And at base camp, we actually hooked up a, uh, a beacon, a avalanche beacon with a bunch of batteries. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. And so I guess I was lulled into being stupid <laughs> and not going to the extent. Complacency, not stupid. Yeah, I thought a 10-foot wand above the glacier, you know, no, no problem. Yeah, so Guide it's, off. It's not going to snow 10 feet, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. anyway, so we took off. We got to the Bergschrund. We crossed the Bergschrund. We left our skis at the Bergschrund, uh, our sleds. And the Brookstones, for people who don't know, is where the glacier separates from the mountain. It's sort of the end of the glacier. Yeah, and, and there's a gap quite, in there yeah, that's kind of difficult. Yeah. Yes. And so anyway, uh, we wandered it, and then we took off, and we started climbing. And it, it was like one low was coming in after another, but we trudged our way up. And we were finally getting up towards 11,000-foot mark, and we left. We decided to move the camp up. And we took everything with us, all the extra fuel, all the food, everything, but we left just, you know, like one days of food back at the camp below because we were going to go up, cache all of that food and whatnot, come back down, sleep overnight, and then proceed on. So we were going up to cache this food, and all of a sudden we got nailed with this blizzard from nowhere. and. You know, we still trudged through for a little ways and then stopped, and it's kind of like, okay, what are we going to do? And Dave and Leo agreed, well, we need to turn around and go back. Uh-huh. Um, actually, I, I, I didn't do this correctly. Uh, we actually cached the food, turned around, and started coming, coming back. back. Yeah, yeah. And then it hit. And we were probably maybe a half mile from where we had cached it, and when we cached it, we put wands up to it you know we were wanding as we were going along and then we put a perpendicular row across where it was at so if we were off the trail a little bit we'd run into one of these wands that was perpendicular we thought that was going to be enough yeah and so then we turned around headed back down and about a mile down or a half mile down this blizzard came through and dave and leo i stopped and i said i think we need to go back and get the cash because we only oh, have yeah. one days of food. Yeah, yeah. If this blizzard lasts for three days, I think that maybe we shouldn't put all our eggs in one basket. Right. Yeah. And Dave and Leo looked at me like, are you crazy? Yeah. And I said, well, you know, we could be starving down there. I really think we should go back. And the two of them said, nope. And I said, well, you know, majority rules. Yeah, democracy. Let's, yeah. Let's, let's turn around and go back. So we went down and we call that camp the toilet bowl. We sat in that camp for several days, and the winds just howled, and we had to get out, first of all, one person to get out and shovel, you know, away from the snow shelter. And, you know, after a while, it was, it was too much for one person, so then it was two, and after a while, it was all three of us, so we were... And you like were a, in a snow cave? or Yeah, we were in a or? snow cave. It looked like an open pit mine. You know, one person had to shovel the next level, and then that person had to shovel the next uh -huh. level, and that one had to shovel the next level. Huh. And finally, you know, it broke, and that's when we decided we needed to turn around and come down. Yeah. So, and how much snow did it? 
Uh, well, when we got down to, and there again, I mean, just getting back was quite a quite an interesting story too. But once we got into Yakutat, there was this new meteorologist in Yakutat, and he was really excited to run out with this big long ream of computer paper showing us that it was the wettest March in the history of their weather recordings in Yakutat, and we probably had 30 feet of snow. Wow, that's a lot of snow. <laughs> so we basically dug our way up to 11,000 feet, turned around and dug our way back down. We well, crossed. Yeah. I, I remember seeing pictures, and there's a little trench like going downhill. Yeah. Because like you're a little digging your way downhill. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, you yeah. left your skis in the Bergstrand, right? Yeah, the skis yeah. in the, you know. So once we reached the Bergstrand, you know, with the skis and the sleds, we we're, we're good as gold. Right. Yeah. So we got down there, and we crossed the Bergstrand in the same place. We had the wands there. Skis and sleds were gone. Oh, uh, we had no clue. Well, you know, all that snow. So we probably dug and probed for three or four hours trying to find that gear. And to this day, still up there. No clue where yeah. it went to because yeah. it was right there stuck in the snow. Uh-huh. I don't avalanche came down and pushed it down. So anyway, yeah. we proceeded to, you know, walk very slowly and we had 150 foot rope and we, you know, basically one person to be on front shoveling and then the next person to take over and the next person to take over. Oh, and then we camped. And what we did then, uh, once we camped, we ended up stomping a trail and wanding it with, you know, 30 inch wands or whatever they are for the next day. Woke up in the morning, looked out there and it's like, Oh no. Where are the wands? Yeah. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't see a wand anywhere. It had snowed so much that night. Yeah. So we tried to keep on, you know, the trail, but you know, we couldn't keep on it all the time, and so after that, we actually dragged all our gear with us, and we didn't do the well wand it out, right, go yeah, back yeah, yeah. and camp. Lose your wands, yeah. And so basically, everybody do a 150 foot length of rope, and that took about a half hour, and we were making very slow progress. And because of all the storms that were coming through and the break in the storms, Mike Ivers threw flew over, so we contacted him. Yeah. And we said, yeah, we need uh, snowshoes and avalanche probes and maybe a metal detector because I figure we might be able to find, yeah. find you know my camera gear in a metal box back at base camp. So anyway um, that was in the morning uh, Mike called my wife, my wife called Jenny Zimmerman, my wife called Doug Fessler and Joe Fredston. And Paul Twardock. And Paul Twardock, yes. <laughs> I this, thank yeah. you, thank you. And they gathered up the gear and they raced it down to the airport and they gold streaked it in and Mike flew over in the afternoon and we had our snowshoes and our pro poles. That's amazing, yeah. And so we were able to make progress and the next day we were able to get to base camp, otherwise it would take us a couple of days just to get base camp. <laughs> and we got to base camp and that smooth glacier looked like the ocean with, you know, 10 foot waves. I mean, there was no way you could land an airplane on it. Oh, no. Oh, because all the wind, like oh, wind drifts. Basically. Oh, yeah. yeah wind drifts. The drifts were just incredible. And yeah. it's like, oh, man. And we couldn't find base camp. I had taken some coordinates, yeah. you know, with a compass. But, you know. Like sightings off a, a point, a it, mountain or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's but a, it's that's a big open hard. glacier. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, we probed around where we thought it was. And it's kind of like, you know, well, this is futile. It's gone. We need to spend our time making an airstrip. So when they come in to pick us up, they can land. Yeah. And so we spent an entire day just knocking off the tops of the drifts and filling in the troughs and packing it down. And then when they flew in, they were able to come pick us up and fly us out. There's, for the listeners, there's a great movie called St. Elias. Um, it's about uh, some Austrians and an American who tried, or did, eventually did, 
tried to do the, a, a, a ski descent of St. Elias from the top of the ocean, you know, and uh, it's, a, it's a good movie, uh, but they have a great segment in there of um, a video of a storm like this, of uh, full on, and it's terrifying. I mean, it's, I don't know, you guys, I'm sure were quite, we, yeah, yeah. In that toilet bowl, we actually felt the whole mass of whatever snow ice was up there move with some of the strong winds that we had that day. Wow. That, I mean, you could you're feel it at almost. You're feeling the cave move. Yeah. It all, yeah. It, yeah. Huh. all of us felt that way. It's kind of like, you know, a little shake like an earthquake, but yeah. you could feel it as like, you know, how precarious <laughs> is, how pre how well <laughs> annealed is the ice to the rock underneath this? Very humbling. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I, yep, yeah, I, I climbed, tried to climb uh, Sanford once, and uh, we had uh, just a snowstorm with lots and lots of snow, no wind, but the wind is what really is scary. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I've backed off on different climbs because we couldn't build a snow cave. Yeah. We went in over to do Torbett and on a trip, and that was with Dave and Leo too. We got up, you know, Torbert's the highest peak over there. Torbert's in over across the inlet from yeah. uh, Anchorage, yep. And it's a pretty flat top mountain, even though it's the tallest one in that area. And we got up on top of there, and it was like ice. I mean, the oh, whole boy. plateau. And we were going to do a ridge climb to continue on and go to Spur, which has never been done that I'm aware of. And, you know, when we were up on top and walking towards, you know, where we could look down what we were going to do, I just kept thinking, you know, if something came through here, we are we're done for. Right, no, nowhere to dig in. And it scared me enough that we had a discussion once we got and looked at the route that we had down there. It was that was a challenging route for sure. Yeah. And that on top of, you know, not having any place to dig into, I, we made the call to to bail. Yeah. So that was a disaster in terms of the trip. We basically flew out there and flew back at yeah. high cost. <laughs> <laughs> was that a winter trip also? Gosh, I. Vaguely remember that. Yeah, yeah, I don't think that was. Um, that's great. So that's a you had a, a success on Logan, and uh, and then successful on Saint Elias in the sense that you all came back alive, <laughs> and lost some equipment, but yeah. still. Um, well, you know, I've never stuff. lost any equipment on any of my mountaineering career, other than pulling through a cornice and losing an ice axe. Yeah. Um, and, and we that? lost everything, and we had to pay the pilot a thousand dollars for that base camp radio. And I mean, yeah. Oh boy, it was his radio. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. So, so John, that was uh, Saint Elias was the epic. Let's talk about a more normal, a normal thing, because I mean we hear about epics all the time, but it's great to hear about just something that just goes as planned. So talk about one of those winter ascents. Okay, well, that'd be Mount Russell for sure, no question about it. And I believe that was the first winter ascent. I could be wrong on that, but, it, I mean, it doesn't matter. The reason we were there was to climb it. And it was Dave and Leo and I again, Dave McGivern and Leo Americus. And basically we flew in, landed on a glacier, spent the next day reconning our route up it. Following day, we went and climbed it and came back down. And our pilot happened to be flying over because there was somebody that had a down plane somewhere else. Someone else had another not, hundred not miles such a great time, a, yeah. a, away, <laughs> and so he was going to check it out. And he happened to be flying right over Mount Russell when he was flying back. And we radio communicated with him and said we're ready to fly out. And he flew in the next day and flew us out. 
and, and Mount Russell's in the Alaska Range. Yeah. And it's, a, as I recall, it's sort of the, the, the very symmetrical pyramid shape. It is sort of an in the obvious right, yeah. pyramid, perfectly shaped yeah. pyramid, you know, to the left or to the west, south yeah, right, of huh. all the big peaks. Yeah. But it does stick out above everything around it. And do you remember what year that was? No, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they all, all blend together. Yeah. That, uh, that's great. Um, any other successful sort of mountaineering trips? Leo and Howie Powder and I went to climb Winter Sun and Mount Drum, which I'm certain has been done before. Um, Howie, that was the last climb Howie did. He just wasn't psychologically into it after that. And how, I'd done a lot of trips with Howie and with Todd Frankowitz until he was killed in an avalanche. And so Howie was a very experienced and, and, a, and a good partner, but you know, at his at point in his life at that time, he basically turned around yeah. and went back. So Leo and I ended up going to the top. We had a very successful climb, no big deal. It's not a technical mountain at all. We turned around and came back down and the wind picked up. Uh -huh. And we started hustling our butts out of there. And we basically ran, skied down to get out of the higher elevations. And that entire mountain was enveloped with a lenticular cloud, and you couldn't see it for the next two days. Oh, boy. <laughs> so yeah, we yeah. narrowly escaped that one. Yeah, and so much of mountaineering is like that. Just luck with the weather. And one yeah. of the highlights of that trip was wolves. We had a wolf pack that was howling at us. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was really cool. Oh, that's special. Right about, yeah, yeah, and I'll always remember that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Again, this is uh, Outdoor Explorer in Alaska Public Media. I'm sitting here on a beautiful sunny June Day with John Bauman, um, and we'll be back with more of John's stories. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes Store, or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. All right, this is Outdoor Explorer in Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Tordak. We're sitting out on my deck on a beautiful sunny June day, having our uh, cold beverage. I'm sitting here with John Bauman. And uh, John, let's talk about uh, sort of trip prep. And uh, you're starting to tell a story about uh, uh, going out of the Falkland Islands. Yeah, so how, well, how'd that come about? And, people yeah. do ask me frequently about trip prep and how do you plan for these things. And we've done so many trips that, you know, we know what we need for gear what we need for food, so that's not anything new. Um, but where do you choose to go? And uh, my good paddling partner, Harry House, who's done a lot of paddling with me, we circumnavigated Iceland together, um, the Falkland Islands. We've done a lot of canoe trips up in Northwest Territories, you know, six, seven week canoe trips. Um, anyway, another great partner. And uh, Harry calls me up and trying to get Harry to go on a trip because he's working and is dedicated to his work is pretty difficult. So when he calls me up, I know that he's got an opening for a trip. So he called me up and says, John, he says, I got some time off. Let's go do a trip. I said, well, what are you thinking of? He says, well, unfortunately, it's in uh, January and February. <laughs> and so I kind of joked and said, well, what, a dog mushing trip? Because Harry's not a dog musher at all. Uh, and he, he, he kind of laughed, and I said, well, it sounds to me like we're going to go to the Southern Hemisphere. And he says, yeah. I said, well, I'm coming through uh, Madison, you know, in another two weeks to visit family, so why don't we get together? So we got together, 
at Harry's place in Madison, you know, and we started throwing different places out. We got a map out. He had a globe there, and we kind of joked. We spun the globe and then put our finger on it, and maybe that would be the place that we'd go. And all of a sudden, the Falkland Islands kind of stared at us, and we thought, well, what's the Falkland <coughs> Islands all about? You know, we didn't know a whole lot about it other than there was British domain, and there had been a war there with Argentina back in the 80s. And so, you know, we started figuring out distances, and there's an east and west Falkland Islands. Uh, they're both about the same size. I think probably to go around the whole thing was maybe 600 miles. Um, but Harry was in a time frame. He had from this date to this date, and I pushed him as much as I could to get it as broad a date as possible to go down there. And so five weeks, and in theory we could do it in five weeks. So we flew down to the Falkland Islands, and we were going to use a two-person clepper of Harry's. <laughs> because trying to get, you know, hard shell boats down there would have been beyond our expense limit. And so Harry sent that down. He was coming from Manus and he was going through Buenos Aires. I was coming through Santiago and Chile. And then we were going to meet at the airport together. So I'm sitting in the airport because I had probably at least 12 hours before Harry would arrive. Maybe it was even longer. And, you know, when Harry's supposed to arrive, you know, there he is, and he comes sauntering up, and, you know, of course, we greeted each other, and said, oh, great, you made it here, Harry, and you're ready to go, and he says, well, there's a problem. And I said, what's that? Uh-oh. He said, well, the boat's in Buenos Aires, <laughs> and we're here, and we have to go to the Falkland Islands, and there is only one flight to the Falkland Islands per week, and we oh. only have five weeks. Yeah. So what are we going to do? Well, because of communications with another person that was a teacher, and he actually did have kayak. He had kayaks, actually. He'd done a little, you know, kayaking in the, in the, fall, in the, fall in the Falklands. Yeah, yeah. Nothing big. You know, um, basically, we flew and met him, told him what was up, and he says, well, you know, you can borrow my hard shells if you want until oh, nice. the boat arrives. Yeah. So there's a huge difference between paddling a single person hard shell that you can roll and you have two boats for rescue as opposed yeah. to one boat that's, you know, uh, a, a collapsible boat, no pun intended, but you know, it's a, it's a rubber bottom and a canvas top and a bunch of sticks in there that's holding everything out. So anyway, um, and, and very similar, they've 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 Hans, Hans uh, Lindemann paddled one across the Atlantic. Oh so, yeah. yeah, I mean they're tried and true, they're seaworthy. <laughs> yeah, There's yeah. no question about it. But when you start coming into landings, beach landings and whatnot, you, know, you got to be pretty right. careful yeah. with those boats. Um, so anyway, uh, basically he lent us the two kayaks to kayak around, and then we had arranged to meet with him when the boat came. And by that time, you know, we really liked. The single boats and he basically said you know you want to just keep paddling i'm not going to use them so yeah. we very much lucked out in that regard um so that was a planning lesson like sometimes yeah. things don't work out but then they do yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes it's rather amazing and befuddling but you know i'm not going to go into the whys and the reasons are there i'm just glad that i'm lucky i guess in that regard and you had a successful trip in the Falklands then? So we had a successful trip in the Falklands other than the fact that basically Falklands are 300 miles off the coast of Argentina. And I don't know latitude-wise how, what latitude they are above towards the equator from Cape Horn, which of course is a very nasty place. Yeah. 
And so what I realized after a while was that basically the winds are coming from the west and the southern seas, hitting Cape Horn, creating an eddy on the backside. And so they don't go straight across Cape Horn. They arc up and they go straight to the Auck of Auckland Islands. Oh, boy. Oh, and so I, I basically felt like we were trying to paddle around Cape Horn. Oh. We had very little weather spells where we could even paddle. We would get up when it was dark and we would be in the boats as soon as we could see and maybe get an hour or two hours in and then we'd sit on shore for three days oh boy and then uh -huh. we'd do that again and then we sit on shore for two days and it was pretty obvious that at some point in time because harry had to be back or supposedly he claimed he'd lose his job which he wouldn't have lost his job <laughs> and so we got around got around to where you know we had to decide whether we were just going to paddle around east falkland islands or continue on around west and basically we pulled the plug on it. It's the only trip that I've really ever pulled the plug on and paddling yeah. and that sort of thing. And we paddled down the strait between them and came back and circumnavigated just east. And of course, flash forward, Harry regrets it to this day. And all we needed was probably another week because to go all the way around as opposed to going down that long strait, you know, yeah. wasn't that hugely larger amount of paddling miles. <laughs> and when we were trying to do this, you know, I was giving a slideshow and people, the question came up, you know, how did you decide to go to the Falkland Islands if this was something, you know, I decided at birth and I've been want, wanting to do it no. all my life. It was kind of like, well, let's spin the globe. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the Falklands. And uh, you know, for the listeners, John and Harry have done all kinds of great trips. They've been out to Lucens a lot. Uh, kayaking, I paddled from uh, Sandpoint up into um, Cook Inlet with them in the early 90s. Um, so very, very accomplished powers. Like I mentioned in the beginning, you know, John is one of those people who have done uh, all kinds of amazing features, and that partnership with Harry House has been super important. So let's talk about um, the Aleutians a little bit. And um, one particular trip that I think I declined to go on because <laughs> I was thought it was a little nuts, but um, I think you started in ADAC, was that right? Yeah, Paul's smarter than than us. Um, yeah, so uh, Harry and I were going to go out and do the Outer Aleutians. We'd done the trip with Paul, which was an amazing trip. Um, Harry and I had the very actually the very first time Harry ever paddled a sea kayak. We spent seven weeks paddling out of Ada or out of um, Dutch Harbor. Dutch Harbor, yeah. And we ended up paddling, circumnavigating basically um, on Alaska, the next island to the south to the west, and coming back and then going all the way to uh, um, Cold Bay. And then we flew out of Cold Bay. Unmac Island? Is that? Yeah. Uh, that was, that was that, in right, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had to go from the islands to the peninsula. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we had plenty of experience paddling out there, and this trip came after the trip with Paul and the trip I just described. And uh, GPSs had been out. Um, version one. Yes. V very rudimentary. Version one, yeah, very yeah. rudimentary. Like the size of a yeah. small book. And my yeah. wife decided that maybe that's something I needed. Well, you know, we've gone away with Map and Compass forever on those other trips out in the chain and the Aleutians, you know, it was no big deal. We're pretty good at map and compass and always have been. So um, my wife decided that she was going to buy me a GPS. 
and she contacted Doug Pesso and Joe Fredston, and Doug said, well, it's another tool in the toolbox. So yep. she bought me a GPS for Christmas. It sat on my desk for a year, and, you know, I never used it. I didn't have a reason to use it, and, you know, sheepishly I went to her one day, and I said, you know, could I return this to REI? I really need a new circular saw. <laughs> and for those listeners, John was, uh, is, was a, a professional carpenter. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Important circular sauce. <laughs> so anyway, she said, okay, you know, so I took the GPS, got the money from it, and I bought myself a really nice Porter Cable circular saw. So, you know, coming, flashing forward to that summer when we were going out to the Aleutians, you know, Harry actually, I think, had access to a GPS. He didn't own one, and we thought, well, you know, we, we'll be fine without him. So we went out there without a GPS. Um, Definitely the Aleutians is one of the most difficult places that we've ever paddled. You have the entire warm North Pacific flooding through that entire chain and around the peninsula into the Bering Sea that is incredibly cold and hence it's the birthplace of the lows and vice versa. And so, you know, some of those passes, you know, are just turmoil if you aren't going through them at the right time and so you know you have to really judge by the tides when you can go through them trouble is the tide books are based on tide stations major stations and so they'll give you that tide and then they give you uh, what the tides would be further out by extrapolating not by they know they have a tide station right there and so these other passes we were going through, we kind of had to guesstimate according to the map, which you can do. But let me tell you, it never worked out. I mean, <laughs> trying to predict what was happening and how all that water flooding back and forth between those islands was just, it's, it's, to us it was impossible. You could be the most logical person in the world and have the mathematics skill of a PhD and it's just a guess. A guess. Huh? And I can't tell you, I, I'd say our batting average was less than 50-50. And you're you know. trying to guess when slack was. Right. So, slack yeah. is hugely important. So there's yeah. two things that are important. Slack tide, you want to be there when it's in between the high and the low. And of course that happens twice a day. And usually the earlier ones are less of a tidal flux than the later ones in terms of the size of the amount of the cubic foot that's moving through it. So just because you have two tides a day, they aren't going to be identical in terms of the amount of water that's flowing through. And then you also have currents. And you can gauge currents off of the tides and when the tides are happening, but they actually make current charts yeah. that tell you what that current is going to be at that time of day. But there again, that's for the major passages for, you know, ocean-going vessels and fishermen and that sort of thing. It's not for all those other ones out there. So that was the biggest challenge for us out in all those Aleutian trips. So anyway, we ended up uh, um, paddling in fog. And, you know, because the land masses there are so small, the heat of the day doesn't heat the land mass up enough to dis dissipate that fog. And we'd run into fog on some of the other trips, but it wasn't such a big deal. Let me tell you, it was a big deal out there. We ended up paddling by the seat of our pants, and we knew that there was one small island in between a very long crossing <laughs> that would be the only place that we could yeah. camp at, possibly, if push came to shove. Well, push came to shove, and we're paddling in fog, and we're using compass, but we don't know how much side drift we're having. 
with a GPS, it doesn't matter what side drift you're having. It's happening off the satellite, yeah. so you you can be, you know, you can drift 10 miles off to one side, and you're still going to go right to the island. You drift 10 miles off one side with a compass, you're going to miss the island. So you know, the probability of us missing that little tiny island that would be our bailout point in a long crossing was pretty high. And we were paddling through thick fog, you know, and you know, I kind of noticed a little difference in the distance in terms and it was fog you know but there was something that was just a little off you know and we continued paddling on by and we knew approximately how long it would take us and you know we only paddled for about 10 more minutes I said Harry you know I think we should go back you know yeah. I, I saw something and there again good partner oh you're full of <laughs> pardon me uh, no he said okay and we paddled back and it was the island and uh -huh. so we were able to scallop out a place to stay on there because the island was steep as hell and it wasn't yeah. very big on the beach. And then the next day we had good weather and we could paddle on. It was no big deal. Yeah. So when we came back, we actually had good weather and we could see that island, which was nice because yeah. we went out and around and came back. And we came to the beach that we were camped at and it was gone. <laughs> Gone like storm wise, yes. Been washed away we had by... had a big storm out there. Oh, wow! And wow. so, had That's we wild. been camped there, and it was as best place as you get on the beach, and it was you know, it wasn't unreasonable in our minds, but it was a big enough storm that we would have gotten washed away. Yeah, that's a great story. I did a trip, um, with Harry out in the Schumann's and um, mid 90s, and we had a 15 mile crossing in the fog, and the other um person on a trip had done all the um, the bearings for our um, crossings but he'd used the um, the declination for Prince William Sound <laughs> and you know the Schumann's a long ways from Prince William Sound not, not only distance wise but latitude wise and we were paddling along we were aiming for Bird Island and I saw these birds going 90 degrees to us and I, we'd been out you know it's 15 miles far, about five hours so I wish to be seeing an island and I see all these birds going 90 degrees to us. I'm like, well, maybe bird, and right then the fog lifted enough for us to see Bird Island. And our, our <laughs> next stop was Seattle. I mean, it wasn't like there was anything in front of us. So yeah, yeah GPS has really changed the tune. And, and, and you know, and GPS is, uh, things happen. They get dropped in the water and the batteries run out. Uh, this is uh, Outdoor Explorer in Alaska Public Media. I'm talking to John Bauman about his many uh, firsts and um, exploits in Alaska. Uh, John, let's um. I have uh, one more thing to add. Oh, really about quickly. the elusive trip. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So coming back then after leaving that small island, the fog set in again, and so we had to hit the point on Adak Island, which is a point. Yeah. And so you know, what are you going to do if you miss it and go to the north? Are you going to realize after you paddle a certain amount of time that you need to paddle south to hit land? If you miss it and you go south. Are you going to realize at that point in time when you should be hitting it? If you don't, you have to turn north. Right. So. Oh yeah. Which way are you going to go? Are you yeah. going to turn south and end up heading to Hawaii because you're actually on the south side of the point? So yeah. that was our next challenge, and basically, I think I don't recall what it was. We went five to ten degrees off huh. of compass huh. bearing. Yeah. Thank heavens we didn't have a lot of drift that day. So once we knew we paddled a certain distance, we needed to turn south. Oh, so you did on purpose? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah, and it's uh, amazing how the Polynesians and the, you know, 
old cultures used to do all this with, and the Aleuts, for instance, could do this just by understanding the waves. It's, I'm reading a great book now called uh, Tides, and it talks a lot about um, the history of tides and currents. Let's um, talk about the last trip I want to talk about is the Iceland trip. Not really Alaska, but similar to Alaska. And so you all, uh, you and Harry, circumnavigated Iceland. Yeah. Um, again, this is in the 90s, I believe. Uh, yeah. And, um, 1996, I think. Right. No. And so a lot of people have 86. done this since, but you guys, I think, were probably some of the, one of the first. And uh, so talk about that trip a little bit. Yeah, some we were, the, we were actually the, a second. A couple of uh, Brits did it quite a few years before oh, us. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I researched that a little bit more, um, but that wasn't going to dissuade us from going. Yeah, it was another one of the situations where Harry had some time off, and he decided he wanted to go to Iceland. Uh-huh. And so what he thought we'd do is we both, well, we didn't have both that break, but he had a breakdown boat, a three-piece hard-shell boat that you could take the three pieces apart, which makes it doable on an airplane. I didn't. That's another story. I ended up with one, which was necessary. I think, I think that involved a skill saw also, right? Yeah. 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 It, 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 yeah. Anyway, so um, Harry thought we'd just fly our boats over there because there wasn't any place in Iceland you'd buy a sea kayak. Yeah. You know? Are we going to get one brought over from Britain? So that was our solution, which was a, a good way to go. And um, he just thought we'd fly over there, you know, and paddle a certain section of it and then maybe throw it on a bus and paddle on another section of it. And I said, well, it sounds good to me. And so, you know, we hung up the phone. And I immediately pulled out maps of Iceland. And I started figuring out distance and all that sort of stuff. And I called Harry back the next day. I said, Harry, I think we should go around the whole thing. He said, what? <laughs> That's like 3,000 miles around. I said, no, it's not. Well, the shoreline, if you followed the shoreline, you know, yeah, exactly. It's probably three thousand miles along, but you know you're cutting bays and or more. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, my calculation is about fourteen or fifteen hundred miles. So I sort of talked Harry into doing the whole thing. And that was another trip planning that yeah, yeah. changed the whole fabric of that trip. And um, we almost weren't able to do what we wanted because when we got there, we needed to extend our visas. We went to the police station. They asked us what we were doing. We said, we're gonna sea kayak around Iceland. He says, I will not issue a visa unless you go talk to Hannes Hofstein, who was the head of the Icelandic Coast Guard. And so I was very <laughs> nervous that night. And the next day we had to meet Hannes. And Hannes was a fairly stern old you know, fishing captain and he didn't warm to our ideas. We told him the trips we'd done in the Aleutians, that we had done all these other trips. So we had experience, and he says, you know, well, how far away from shore are you gonna be? Oh, we're gonna follow shoreline real closely, which of course we weren't. Um, yeah. And he said, well, let me think about it. And so then I had another nervous night, and we were gonna go do it anyway. I mean, we were there. If we had to sneak away and do it, we were gonna do it. I don't know what trouble we would have gotten into, probably a lot, once they found out that we had done it. And so he kind of, you know, said, well, um, here's what I want you to do. When you pull into a harbor master and all these ports you're stopping at, because we had to stop in for food about every three weeks at, you know, villages around the island. He says, I want you to go to the harbor master and tell him you want to call Hannes Hofstein. Huh. And so he was going to keep track of where we were going. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, you know, we went in the first place. Oh, Hannes Hofstein. I mean, he's like God there. I mean, the whole Iceland is fishing. Right. And this guy is the top of the pyramid for that. And so, you know, 
know, there was no problem. And uh, as we made our way further around, Hannes became much more confident in what we were doing. And actually, he actually let people know when we were coming in. And so, you know, their res yeah. rescue crew would come out and meet us at the docks. They'd put us up in a nice, you know, rescue facility. We could patch our boats. You know, they had a microwave. We could heat up food. And uh, we were definitely got to know the Icelandic culture way more than we ever would have had Hannes not oh, nice. backed us. Yeah. So we finally got over the East Coast. We'd paddle about a thousand miles. And um, the East Coast has like 200 kilometers of black sand beach with no place to land if the, if the seas come up because, you know, seas start getting two, three, four meters. The waves on the shoreline are nothing that you want to deal right, with. Yeah. You're either going to hurt yourself and or hurt your boat or both. Yeah. A boat, and so you know, you really need a harbor or a shelter place to land. And you know, we looked at the maps to see where there are places, and there weren't any places really. So we pulled in at the northern section of that 200-kilometer black sand beach, and um, looked at maps. We actually pulled into a river, and paddled up the river about a mile, and it was the only. There's a lake up there, and it's the only glacier in all of Iceland that actually calves off into this little lake and then pushes some ice down this one mile stretch of the river that we pulled up. So we camped there and we knew that there was a rock projection of some sort off the beach about 18 miles further south. So that was yeah. kind of our bailout point. So we're not even at the shoreline, not at the coast. We're a mile in, we throw our boats in, paddle down, paddle out, and the seas were maybe two feet seas, foot seas at that time. And we started heading south and the wind came up and the wind came up and the oh seas boy. got bigger and the seas got bigger. And by the time we paddled 18 miles, which took us about five hours probably, um, uh, the seas were so big around this sea stack that was out there, there was no way that you could sneak oh around man. the back. Oh, this is where we're gonna land. And yeah. so this is when we realized that we were in for the long haul. We had anticipated this potential so we had extra gear in the cockpit. We had extra food, um, you know. So we were prepared for that yeah. if it happened. And basically, we ended up paddling for 22 hours. Oh wow! Through the middle of the night in seas that, thank God, weren't quite breaking at the top at the crest. Yeah. But damn close. And I mean, if I was down in the trough, there was no way I could see Harry. I wow. mean, they had to be, and I'm trying not to exaggerate, easily 15 foot seas. Oh, wow. And yeah. I wouldn't doubt whether we had 20 footers in there. Yeah. And the biggest danger was falling asleep. And so I was continually splashing cold water in my face. Yeah. The seas were so big that, you know, you weren't going to get any food out or put clothing on out there. Yeah. Without oh, yeah, yeah. Great difficulty or potential hazard because, you know, if one of us went over in those seas, I the other person would have a hell of a hard time even trying to rescue. Yeah. So, you know, we're a partner, we're a team, and we're going to do whatever we can do, but it was kind of like you're on your own to a degree out there. It's a psychological conundrum that is is difficult. Um, and that's so true about the outdoors in general. As much as we talk about rescues, whether it's in the mountains or on the ocean, when it gets bad, you're on your own. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, you can learn every rescue in the world in calm water, and both Paul and I have taught many people, you know, rescue in sea kayaks, but, you know, we're rescuing under ideal conditions. So. Right. 
So anyway, um, we paddled through the middle of the night, and finally, think, thank God, A, it was a tailwind. So we only slowed down to where we could keep our body heat up because we were cold, even though you know we had you know, yeah. good paddling gear on. And so we were kind of lily-dipping the entire way, just getting blown across that east coast, blowing south. Um, and once daybreak came, you know, the sea started calming down and we ended up being able to go on shore at this little bit of a bite that was towards the southern end of the extent of that uh, the sand beach and we were able to put in there. And I remember going in and landing and pulling my boat up and then Harry came in and I grabbed his and pulled it up and Harry got out and he says, what do you think about a rest day? <laughs> so we still had to call Hannes oh, yeah. to report oh, yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got on the phone and I called Hannes. We had to actually walk to a little village. Called Hannes. He says, yeah, where are you at? And I said, Beak. That was, that's actually for a, a bite or what, yeah, yeah, yeah. Icelandic, but that's what the place was called, just Beak. And he says, Beak? I said, yeah. And we had called in before we had left. So he knew the distances involved. And basically we covered 110 miles in 22 hours which is five miles an hour without hardly paddling. Generally speaking, if you average in a day of how far you're paddling on calm seas, you take your lunch breaks, you take whatever breaks, you know, you're paddling, you know, the time-wise, it's about three miles an hour. And so we got blown across at five miles an hour without having to paddle and covered 20, 110 miles. That's a great story. When I got back to Anchorage, I talked to uh, Ed Mon, a good anesthesiologist friend of mine, and told him our situation and that falling asleep was the biggest danger and so he prescribed me the strongest pharmaceutical speed at that time and on the label it said to be used in emergency situations only I never have taken it so yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> well that's great I've been with uh, talking with John Bauman uh, thanks uh, John for being on the show and sharing the stories with us well it was a pleasure thanks for listening and to my guest John Bauman for joining us John's outdoor accomplishments are many, and we thank him for his time. Also, thanks to our producer, Eric Bork. This is your host, Paul Tordak, and from all the hosts at Outdoor Explorer, we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, The Man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.